Welcome to Collier's Talks, a podcast series featuring the latest trends, insights, research, and developments in commercial real estate in Canada and beyond. Hello, and welcome to Collier's Talks. I'm Adam Jacobs, head of research for Collier's Canada, and I'm joined by Dan Holmes, Collier's Canada's president of brokerage. In today's episode, we'll talk about the market, the commercial real estate industry, what happened in the last quarter, last year, what's happening now, and what we, of course, anticipate to unfold in the future. And we're having this discussion on the heels of the recently released Collier's fourth quarter national market snapshot report available to everyone on the website. So Dan, how are you doing this morning? Adam, thank you very much for having me. Excited to be here. Today is the 1st of February. I have no idea where the first month of 2023 went. It just it flew by. Agree on that 100%. Let's start with the big picture. Obviously, 2022 had a lot of surprises, rate hikes, conflict in Ukraine, you name it. But what surprised you the most in the past year in our industry and deals you saw or didn't do in in a particular city? What was the thing that really shocked you in 2022? 2022 started off with uh, an incredible six months of activity. Everything from office leasing to investment sales to uh, the boom in industrial and retail. What surprised me the most is how quickly it turned off. If the first six months of the year were record-breaking for our clients and our competitors, the second six months was a lot quieter. It was fascinating to see how fast those taps can be turned off. You touched on it as interest rates continued to rise and as inflation started to play a major impact on our economy, it really did slow down quite dramatically for the back half of 2022. So what surprised me the most was how quick that delta can change. I think that was a huge shock. 2022 was on track for the all-time record year of record years, and then the brakes got hit pretty hard on that. Okay, this is year three of return to office. It's going slowly, but it's going. Even the federal government, who is the last 100% work-from-home employer, has said that they're going back next month. So just generally, what are you hearing from the landlord, from the occupier, from the employee? What are you hearing about return to work? Is it going more smoothly? Have we learned a few things in the last couple of years? This has become the new table talk. <laughs> you, you can't go on an elevator ride. You can't go for a cocktail. You can't go to a friend's house for dinner without talking about hybrid and return to office. This is really now the, the new conversation that's dominating our ecosystem. It has been a trickle, to your point, and has not been a waterfall. It's been a trickle to return to the office. I think the one thing that we all need to take into account that there is not a one size fits all for companies. It really is going to take each organization its own time to find out where the right balance is for them. I have seen the differences between Vancouver and Toronto. I would say Vancouver was an early adopter, maybe climate and and their weather conditions played a a part of their return to office versus Toronto. It's more of an indoor in-office culture. It's taken a bit longer to return to office. I think you, you mentioned the federal government, even some of our larger banks are now starting to imply that they want their employees back to the office a little more. I think TD just recently said two days a week, which again, these are all trickles to returning to the office. I'm pro-hybrid. I think that there's an opportunity for all of us to learn from the pandemic and and learn from the flexibility that we're able to provide to create a better work-life balance. 
And I think that that work-life balance means different things to different people. Work-life balance to me doesn't mean working from home five days a week, but to some it does. So again, as, as we try to figure out what that's going to look like over the course of the next two to three years, is I think how long we're going to be talking about this, it's certainly going to have its ebbs and flows for sure. Agreed. We've all reached the point of hybrid isn't a temporary, you know, holding pattern during COVID. Like it's here, everyone has moved over to that, but we have not figured out all the ups and downs. On that theme, what challenges are tenants facing with hybrid? We know about like there's technology problems, there's security problems, but there's also, you know, culture problems. How do young people get folded into the company? How do we train? How do we learn? What do you hear on the tenant occupier side of this? Like, what's the challenge with hybrid? Is it just getting everyone in the office at the right time? Is it like the tech side? What are they struggling with? Let's not forget less than a year ago here in Ontario, we were in a lockdown. It's not that long that we've been out of COVID lockdowns. I think it was January to February of, of last year, we were all mandated to stay home. So I think as we come out of that, and I think we're officially out of that now, we are still trying to figure out what that right balance of hybrid looks like and what the right amount of time in the office looks like from a productivity perspective. The one thing I do want to touch on all related to this is over the course of the last two years, we've all been relying on relationship capital that we've established at our organization. So if I've worked at a specific organization for 20 years, I've established pretty good relationship capital with the senior individuals, the junior individuals, the mid-level individuals at my organization. As time goes on, that relationship capital starts to diminish if I'm not in the office and I'm not bumping into people at the water cooler, I'm not going for lunch, and I'm not working on projects in person. So as time as that relationship capital starts to diminish, I also believe loyalty starts to diminish as well, which may have played a part in the great reshuffle, the great resignation, whatever we want to call that. So I think the opportunity for organizations to come up with some kind of hybrid model to keep people engaged, to keep people productivity high, and to keep people part of that relationship capital moving forward, it really does have an impact on being in person versus hybrid. Yeah, totally agree with that. It's my first year at Collier's and I have a young team. I, I think I definitely agree with those. You can you can get by on who you know for a while, but there there is a limit to that. Well, you bring um, up a good point. Think, think about all the people that were onboarded in different organizations through COVID. And I know that there's tons of people that were onboarded at Collier's through COVID and they come into the office a year later and say, hey, Adam, first time I got a chance to meet you in person. Isn't this great? So, you know, even, even that poses its own challenges. Still having that experience. So related topic, everybody wants flexibility right now. Like you say, there's still a lot of uncertainty. We're still kind of in year one of, okay, no more restrictions, lockdowns, mandates. How does this work? We certainly hear about people want a shorter lease term. They don't want a 10-year lease maybe the way they did, or else maybe they want a little bit smaller space. They don't want five floors. They want a little more flexibility. So is that just the new normal or are we going to see people make some longer term decisions and, and look for more stability going forward? Over the course of the last couple of years, any CEO that was faced with the decision of, of his or her office lease was probably faced with some pretty tough challenges. Do we right size? Do we look at this as an opportunity to save some costs? Do we maintain the same square footage even though nobody's in our office today? These are really tough decisions. So I have full empathy for anybody who had to make those decisions over the last couple of years. And short term, 
leases were probably the most logical. I don't know what 2023 is going to look like. I don't know what 2024, 2025 is going to look like. So creating that flexibility for everybody's company made a ton of sense. If you are an in-the-office organization, if you know you need to have collaborative space, if you know you need to have team space for productivity, for launching new products, those organizations are still securing long-term leases. Those organizations know that the office is going to place some form of empowerment to their team long-term. They're the ones that are still securing long-term leases. It may not be the exact same square footage. It may be a slight reduction. It may be the same size. It may even be taking a bit more space as we all recognize the need for more collaboration space. And people haven't, I don't think, fully considered that more space is a, a possibility. All the dialogue is on the left side, but I think that's not guaranteed at all. Okay, so related to all of this is the job market. COVID was a massive shock. A ton of people lost their job. And the big surprise since then has been how tight the job market is. It seems like just every month we read the story, the job market is on fire, job growth outperforms. In my view, this is very related to what's going on with hybrid work, return to work. What are you hearing about hiring? How is that influencing the tight job market? How is that influencing how occupiers are thinking about remote work, hybrid work, not necessarily going back full time? Is that part of the discussion with tenants and occupiers? Yeah, it's definitely discussions that are happening at the C-suite level. Uh, in the most anticipated recession to, to, for any of us ever to talk about, we've been talking about this potential recession looming for two, three quarters now. The one caveat is the job market. As you said, the job market continues to stay extremely competitive. There's still tons of jobs out there that organizations are struggling to fill. We're still dealing with all kinds of retention issues where as people look to increase their compensation. There's extreme wage pressure on, on more organizations. So that is absolutely playing an effect on return to work. That's absolutely playing an effect on organizations as they look at the future of what their office may look like. This could be the first recession we ever go into with the tightest job market that's ever existed. So it's very controversial in the sense that they don't normally line up. Usually a recession lines up with you know high unemployment rate. So tying that back into flexibility, tying that back into hybrid, if I want to have more flexibility and that means working for home for me and I'm feeling pretty darn good about my job security, that's harder for my boss to say, we'd like you in the office two or three days a week. It seems like there's not just a recession, it's various different parts of the economy are up and down, but there's no big picture downturn that we're seeing, at least not yet. I think we all recognize the fact that inflation is high and we need to bring that back down for the cost of livings, for everybody to continue to have affordable housing and, and everything. The, the inflation pressure is bad, but employment is good. And wage pressure is bad, but people making good salaries is great. So somewhere in here, we have to find where the reality is. And somewhere in here, we have to find some form of path forward where inflation isn't at six plus percent and it returns down to the two percent where we all want it to be. Yeah, I think the issue of inflation is just wreaking havoc. And I, I'm, I share that view of like this just has to come under control at some point. It, it can't go on this way little bit more uh, office talk. We've talked for a while about flight to quality as a trend during the pandemic. If you want those employees back, and some people do, 
you need to upgrade your space, you need to offer more amenities, you need to make the commute shorter, you need to have a better view. So at least here in Toronto, AAA, what we call you know the, the top of the top of the market, is really outperforming much lower vacancy than the market overall, seems to have a lot of demand. Do you think that will continue? Obviously, not everyone can afford AAA office, but do you think this flight to quality trend is something that's going to keep on going in 2023? Short answer, yes, but I, th- I think it would be prudent of us to just kind of rewind pre-pandemic. The flight to quality existed pre-pandemic. As new office towers were being built, CIBC Square and others, the flight to quality has continued as the well was built. People are looking for that community. People are looking for that higher quality building. They're looking for a better tie into ESG, which is I know is a, is a newer term. But green buildings have had a higher demand, whether it was LEED, BOMA Best, or or now having the tie into ESG. These quality buildings are attracting the right types of tenants and the right types of employees that want to be part of something bigger than just going to my office to work every day. AAA buildings certainly provide all the things you just said, Um, maybe better access to the transit, maybe better access to an underground path, parking, amenities, all of these different things, including air quality, right? So I think as we look at the flight to quality, it's more than just it's a better building. It's all the other more softer things around that as well. I do think it will continue. Even as more and more AAA has come onto the market, usually you'd think that would you know really have a huge effect on vacancy, but we're not really seeing that yet. It's more the middle stuff that's getting squeezed a little bit. And it's not a one-size-fits-all, right? I mean, there, there are organizations that are going from B-class buildings to B-class buildings, but yet spending a disproportionate amount of money on their space to improve their space inside of those B-class buildings. So whether it's moving to a, a higher-class building or moving to higher-class space within a building, people are certainly investing in their real estate for sure. Now, let's talk kind of cross-Canada tour. Alberta has been on the upswing in the last year. A lot of reasons. They've got a strong job market. We've been reading the stories about people relocating for affordability. If you're here in Ontario or in BC, you've seen the move to Alberta ad campaign. It's everywhere. But let's talk about our industry. That's sort of individual households. Like, what are you seeing the impact in Alberta, leasing market, retail, industrial investment? What do you think is happening with that trend towards Alberta going back on the upswing? couple of quick points, and I won't forget the morning I heard the Alberta promotional ad on the radio, and yes, I still listen to the radio. It was remarkable to hear the campaign talking about affordable housing, and the commercial went into what you could afford with $400,000 in Alberta versus what you can get for $400,000 in Toronto or Vancouver, which we all know is not much. So yeah, great campaign, great initiative, and it's clearly working. As people are moving out to Alberta, we've even had a few of our own employees transfer from major markets to Alberta. So I think it's great. As it relates to real estate, Alberta, it's its funny. It almost plays the opposite of the rest of Canada. When the rest of Canada is strong, sometimes Alberta suffers. When the rest of Canada suffers, sometimes Alberta thrives. Having an incredibly resource-rich, energy-rich province has really proven to be almost acting as a buffer and insulator to everything else going on around the world. So Alberta continues to thrive. It continues to thrive in the office market, the industrial market, retail, 
they were they were early adopters and returning to the office for sure. They ignored a lot of the COVID protocols. Not suggesting that's a good thing, but the Wild West certainly was pushing the boundaries early, and they continue to. And it, it's great to see how well Alberta's doing as a province, and how well uh, our, our real estate market is doing there as well. And it's interesting where the story is, like you say, it's so tied to the oil and gas economy normally, but now it feels like it's a little bit more in line with just people aren't moving there to be riggers and work in Fort McMurray. Like that's not the story we're hearing this time around. It's a lot more about the professional work, the day-to-day job you might do in Vancouver or Toronto, but you're doing it in Calgary or Edmonton. I, I don't think that trend is done yet by a long shot. No, I think Alberta learned from maybe some of its previous highs and lows that the economy needs to diversify itself. And the boom around tech in Alberta, to your point, is great. And if they can find a way to diversify, hey, they're an energy province, they're an oil province, all good. But if you can find ways to diversify that and bring in different skilled labor for different resources and different industries, that will continue to help that province thrive. I think the story of last year we can agree if there's one story, it it was interest rates. Tons of questions in that area, but who's being most impacted by the new borrowing costs? There's some speculation that this is bad for some investors, good for other investors who are a little more cash rich or have a longer time horizon. Like, What are you hearing out there in the investment side, acquisitions, sales? Who's being most impacted by the new reality of 5% instead of 0%? It's a great question. And I I think the easy answer is, and you already nailed it, those who are cash buyers certainly are an incredible advantage today versus leveraged buyers. But I think what will be interesting to see is 2023 is going to help us answer that question. Because in 2022, for the first half of the year, everybody was still able to leverage their previously engaged banking commitments. So private investors, public investors, REITs, pension funds, everybody was able to take advantage of interest rates in 2022, even if they didn't do any transactions in the second half of the year. Now it's been six months, seven months of people sitting on potential cash that needs to be deployed, potential funds that are kind of getting a bit anxious. So now we're really going to see who are going to be those early adopters into the market with those higher interest rates. The reality is we still need interest rates to level set before we're going to see an increased amount of activity. I think there are going to be some people that are going to take advantage of this, people that have been creating some dry powder on the side as a common term, who have a bit more leverage still left. I think that they'll be the ones that are, say, in in six, seven years, yes, I was able to take advantage of some opportunities in early 2023. I think over the course of the next six months, we're going to find out who's ready to dance. Follow-up question, who's going to benefit from the higher rates, maybe on the tenant side or on the investor side, institution side? We tend to think in real estate, high rates equals bad, but this could also be an opportunity for certain people. Like, Who's going to come out of this ahead who is maybe struggling in the very low rates? No, who's going to come ahead is who has the long-term vision or some short-term creativity. If we're looking to deploy capital and we've got a 20-year horizon, today's a great time to buy. If we're looking to deploy capital and we need to sell it within the first 12 months, today's not a great time to buy. You still do want those interest rates to level set and vendors' expectations to adjust so you can still get a return on that. 
Others that will capitalize on this are those that have a very creative structure. We're going to come in, we're going to add value, and we're going to find a way to immediately add value to said asset and flip it quickly. But anybody who has a longer term horizon will be the ones, in my opinion, that will benefit from the interest rates today. It's harder for those with a short-term time horizon to benefit. It's, if I need to sell this asset in two or three years, that's a much riskier purchase versus if I know that I'm holding this asset for 20 years. And there's plenty of investors out there, the pension plan types who are, you know, this is just a, a drop in the bucket and the time horizon is quite long for them. The fundamentals of our business are strong. We're in a position now with interest rates that are higher than the norm of the past couple of years, but they're actually not high when you look at it historically. It's inflation that's high that's kind of causing all this disruption. So this will level set. This will return to a stable ecosystem. And I do think there's still great fundamentals in commercial real estate long term. Absolutely. Two more questions. Uh, one office, one industrial. So one thing that was surprising in the snapshot and that we highlighted was you're starting to get more and more markets where the suburbs are outperforming downtown. Not necessarily here in Toronto, but Certainly, we look at Vancouver, we look at Kitchener, we look at Saskatoon, we look at a number of markets. It, it's quite clear the suburbs, they've got the lower vacancy, they've got the leasing momentum. Is this the fallout from people leaving the big city during COVID to buy a, a place in the country? Or like, is it just that maybe downtown needs to do a little more to attract the occupiers back? Or it's a construction story. We're not building as much in the suburbs and there's a lot more new stuff being built downtown. What do you think about the markets where the suburbs are now taking the lead, which just isn't normally the case? Yeah, I think you touched on a couple of really important parts. And if I were to sum it up in, in one word, I think it's a lifestyle. Lifestyle for me, meaning I, if I live in a suburb and I can commute to work in my car and I can get free parking and that commute is only 15, 20 minutes, half an hour, that's a lot more attractive than an hour-long commute to a downtown core. Maybe I've got to go on a GO train, then a TTC, then a walk. So I, I think that as some people left the core markets and moved into suburbs, now that's certainly playing an impact on where we're seeing some of that occupancy returning to offices. I also think the suburban buildings offer more flexibility in terms of how you're getting in and out. Right? If, if I'm trying to go into the office only for a couple hours, that's a lot easier for me to do in Kitchener-Waterloo than it is at 181 Bay Street. We were down on suburban office parks for a while. Everyone wanted to be downtown, but all those downtown advantages have flipped around and kind of become liabilities. As you say, free parking in the suburbs does have its advantages, and there, there certainly isn't free parking down where we're uh, working at the moment. We talked about the suburban markets thriving 10 years ago when RBC and TELUS and others started moving out and putting corporate head offices out there. And then there was the push to bring everybody back downtown. I'm not suggesting that the new trend is to go out to the suburbs, but if this is part of a natural cycle that we're going through, that's okay. It's a bit surprising. And perhaps there's going to be a bit of momentum downtown where the pull needs to become a bit stronger. We need more free events. We need a discounted bus pass. I think we're we're still trying to work out those details of how do we get everyone downtown. We need more young professionals to continue to purchase condos and rent condos and apartments downtown because if I live and work and play downtown as a younger individual, that's still a ton of fun. Agreed. And that housing momentum I still see pretty strong. Plenty of condos and downtown Toronto, at least. Okay, so we've talked so much about office and investment, and yet 
year after year, the leading performer for Collier's is, of course, industrial. And another great year in 2022, leasing is incredibly strong. Vacancy is below half a percent in, in a lot of markets. So can the industrial market stay this tight going forward? I feel like every quarter I say, look, rents can't keep going up this much. It, you know, this market has to give. And yet on and on it goes year after year. So can industrial just stay at this level of 1% vacant, crazy rent growth? Or is something have to give there? We, as a percentage of our industrial market, are not developing as quickly as some of our U.S. counterparts or global counterparts. Conservative Canadians are, are not developing enough real estate products fast enough. I'll say on one hand. On the other hand, I'll say all good things do eventually come to an end. But as e-commerce continues to be strong, and, and I'm a believer that Amazon's not going anywhere and we're going to continue to shop online and and as manufacturing becomes more and more important in Canada, and those jobs are now being recreated in Canada, yeah, I think industrial has a long runway to go. And you look at markets like Vancouver, the you know starting rents in the 20s, and and Toronto and their high teens and going into the 20s, I still think that there's a lot of room for industrial to continue to grow and improve. And there's a flight to quality in industrial as well as people are coming out of. 14 foot high clears into 30 foot high clears and what that can do for their businesses and productivity and how much square footage they need to take. Industrial is really exciting. And as you said, it's on fire. It really is. Yeah. And that point we often make it, which is it seems like there's record high amounts under construction for industrial in Canada. And yet that record high amount is still not really that high an amount. You know, if it was all delivered tomorrow, we'd still have a tight market. So it would um, be gobbled up. Yeah. And and I, I just had that discussion this morning with someone, what if there's a recession? And they said, well, don't we still need cold storage for grocery stores? Even if there's a recession, people have to eat. So I, I won't say industrial is totally immune from, you know, recession, job loss, all that, but it tends to be the kind of fundamentals of life. The other thing we didn't even touch on yet, Adam, is the number of new immigrants coming to Canada as well, which is going to continue to fuel not just industrial, but retail and office with half a million new immigrants coming to Canada each year, up from 300,000. Again, that's another driver for industrial. To your food comment, to your resources comment, to the e-commerce comment, these people that are coming into Canada need to eat. They're going to shop, as we all do. Given that, do you see any changes? Sometimes we get asked, when is industrial going to be a balanced market? And I never have a great answer to that. Every trend is towards, as you say, demographics, you know, more population growth, more e-commerce. So do you see any changes that could push industrial to more of a balanced market? I mean, this is a great situation for developers and landlords. From the tenant side, it can be a squeeze. So what could change here? Anything? Yeah, the balance will come with transportation costs. And as we run out of land to build in prime industrial parks and we start moving into you know, some of the tertiary markets, the transportation costs still have to make sense. I can't open a warehouse in Northern Ontario and expect the commuting patterns and the cost of transportation to make sense versus paying $4 million an acre for something in Mississauga or Brampton. So when those transportation costs start to come down, if they'll come down, or if we come up with some new technology that helps with those costs, 
that could be a disruptor for industrial for sure. And, and we're seeing it. We're seeing it in Winnipeg. We're seeing it in Saskatchewan. We're seeing it in some of our other markets where traditionally they wouldn't have been hotbeds for some of these more institutional players. They're now moving to these markets saying, wow, this is a lot less expensive. How do I make this work? I think that about wraps it up. Thanks, Dan, for your time. Thanks, everyone, for joining our conversation. This has been Adam Jacobson, Dan Holmes, President of Brokerage at Colliers Canada. Goodbye for now, and we hope you tune in again for the next episode. Thanks for listening to Collier's Talks podcast. To learn more about Collier's Canada, our experts, and our solutions, visit colliers.canada.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook.